0: hello ladies you are listening to the saludable latina women's health and wellness podcast with lydia gomez ash the saludable latina podcast started with the intention to raise awareness about a variety of women's health topics but then i quickly realized that the wellness journey is full of transitions so i expanded my mission to include topics such as spirituality health and wellness I am more focused to bring authentic conversations with real women as well as health and wellness experts for their insights for growth in the wellness journey. I hope that you find all the guests that come to the Saludable Latina community as people who are doing purposeful, intentional work. They are smart and they are passionate and they have a dynamic point of view when it comes to the wellness space. So I hope that you're able to learn something from the conversations, from the health tips, all the conversations that we have from women to women. Are you ready for the new episodes? Well then, let's get started! Okay Mujeres, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to share about a natural foaming feminine wash made by realm. Is actually pH balanced paraben free and gynecologist tested yes mujeres you heard that right la flor is going to enjoy a healthy pH balance item that not only is paraben free but includes natural ingredients such as lavender oil eucalyptus leaf oil rosemary leaf oil along with citrus lemon peel oil citrus lime oil and Kiri Lowy fruit extract, I mean, come on, those ingredients alone, I was like, whoa, my flor is already wanting to hop in the shower and just say, hey girl, hey. So anytime you're actually looking into a feminine wash, one of the things you wanna be mindful about is to make sure that it's healthy, for your anatomy down there and then it's not going to contribute to any ph imbalances so this was already gynecologist tested, meaning that it's going to be a good ph balance but also you want to take a look into seeing if you're not allergic to any of the natural ingredients on there you can actually apply the feminine foam wash for daily use you pump foam into your hand and gently cleanse the vaginal area and rinse thoroughly okay can I just hop in the shower right now and rinse my little floor so I can feel all that eucalyptus love with all the natural extracts too because this is gonna be a nice feminine friendly product for la flor okay ladies if you're wanting to know more about the product I will link it up and i'm pretty sure you can find it online and maybe even at target too i'll take a look into it so i can share what the item is and where you can find it all right let's get started with today's episode okay ladies welcome back to another episode to saludable latina really talking wanted to have a special guest today Dr. April Moreno, who is actually a public health researcher and professional, as well as integrative wellness. And she actually does podcasting, which is pretty admirable, because she actually raises awareness in regards to women or in general who actually deal with autoimmune disease. And we're going to get into that conversation today, as well as kind of throw in a little bit about the COVID awareness and what people should know if they have underlying conditions with autoimmune disease. How are you doing today April?
1: Good thank you. How are you doing Lilia? I'm
0: doing good. I just transitioned into um, coming home so doing, I'm, I'm enjoying not having traffic.
1: <laughs> oh yeah it's pretty quiet out there I'm, I'm guessing. It's... Yes it, it definitely is.
0: So Dr. April if you don't mind can you let us know a little bit about who you are and what got you into public health?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. I'm Dr. April Moreno and I am here on day, I think day seven of my social isolation. (laughs) Um, And so my uh, doctorate is in public health and information systems. Uh, So basically I was doing public health informatics with my dissertation. And um, the way I got into all of this was through my master's. It was in public administration. So a lot of that involved policy, I was really passionate about uh, social justice and environmental justice. I was doing a lot of research on the rail yards, particulate matter, diesel emissions, and how it affects the health of the communities uh, that it's uh, surrounded by. And then um, as I finished my master's, I was hired in public health in LA County to do their strategic planning and their uh, performance improvement measures. For substance abuse and so while I was there I just wanted to learn more about what epidemiology was and I wanted to know a little bit more about what public health was about and so that began my my journey into this whole world of public health and chronic disease and then autoimmune disease.
0: Thank you so much for sharing so it seems to me like you have a great background getting to know public policy and making sure that we are having healthy communities, although that's still a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of spiked your interest in epidemiology. So was there anything specific that happened happening? Was there something that was concerning you that you wanted to explore more while you were leaning more towards epidemiology?
1: I became really interested at the time in mapping data. So while I was, even before the doctorate started, I was uh, working all day, at the county, and then at night, I would take my classes in ge- in geographic information systems, and I was just really fascinated with maps. I love, I just love maps. I've always been really interested in staring at maps, looking at where I'm located, where I'm situated, where everything is located, and then um, somehow I don't even remember how it started, but I found this program at a local community college, and I signed up for the GIS certificate and. All of that was connected to this study of epidemiology, beginning to understand um, all kinds of things, demography as well, understanding how we can map the census data, how we can look at trends, we can look at toxic release emissions, we can look at chronic disease data, substance abuse data. And it was really fascinating to put all of that information together on one map and combine them and look at trends that we maybe Did not notice before or maybe we hypothesized maybe we guessed like you know we can definitely predict that maybe in neighborhoods of color that there were going to be more toxic release facilities and then putting that data together was so fascinating to see that that was actually the case in many circumstances
0: wow and i was just about to ask you since you're talking about mapping i always hit this term with you know with the health and human service agency um, give me your zip code and I'll tell you how the health of the community, if they're at high risk or if they're in, in a good state of health. So when you were finding out about mapping, what did you find out, especially for
1: communities of color? Oh, wow. That's so fascinating. I found that there were definite trends along freeways and communities of color. For example, I was finding trends in Los Angeles County where, where all the, a lot of the Latino population was living it was close to freeways and it was also close to places where eminent domain was happening. I Mm -hmm. saw where the 710 freeway had to stop that was supposed to connect Long Beach up to Pasadena and it had to stop. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I saw where um, in Latinx communities where there were um, things such as the toxic release, landfills and things um, where this population was actually definitely located so that was really interesting to see and then in terms of zip code yeah there's a phrase out there that says that your zip code can determine your lifespan Mm -hmm. in the field of public health because of we talk a lot about the social determinants of health and how all these different factors are involved in our the way that we live Uh, we say the live work eat play and pray Um, all Mm -hmm. these things are uh, influenced by public health right and um so yeah, zip code really does matter because when you start to think about uh, crime, you think about public transportation options, you think about income and the um, access to supermarkets. Um, you're sure, I'm sure you're familiar with like food deserts and food mm-hmm. swamps. So yeah. like, the food deserts yeah, being like, you know, where all the fast food, or, well, actually food swamps are where all the fast food is. And then the food yeah. desert is like where you can't get a supermarket. So yeah, zip code really does play a huge role in our quality of life.
0: That's amazing. And I'm, I'm really glad that we're discussing that because I want our, our listeners to make sure that they're aware that, you know, our zip code really does determine our, our lifespan because just like you said, like the, the food mar- supermarkets or if we're surrounded by fast foods, right? It makes a big difference in the outcome of, of lifestyle for, for some communities. But having mm-hmm. that said, April, I know you're focusing more on autoimmune. Was there any particular personal experience and or something that drove attention to focusing more on autoimmune disease?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it's like, as I get older, the story just gets longer. And so now I'm (laughs) in my 40s, right? I'm in my 40s now. And it's just like the, the story, how it all began, it just, it gets longer. And so when I was working in public health and also studying in this field of community and global health, health promotion sciences, I was involved with a lot of uh, work in chronic disease. And when we talk about chronic disease in the public health, Uh, field we tend to think about diseases such as type 2 diabetes hypertension high blood pressure um, smoking even and maybe occasionally we'll refer to substance abuse as chronic disease but really for the most part it is something that is very much related to like diet and exercise Mm -hmm. Um, and when I was in my third year of my dissertation and the third year of my PhD I learned a lot about a new dimension of chronic disease because it happened to me and that was autoimmune disease and so I had to leave my job in a public health agency um, where I was on this like really nicely paid fellowship but it was just kind of like I was not having a great experience there I wasn't very supported um, I think there was maybe some miscommunication in terms of what we were there to do it was a training program, and. Um, it was like a mentored program. And there was so much where I didn't feel connected. And in fact, I felt a lot of um, traumatic um, revision. What what do I say? What should I say? Like, I was reliving trauma from my childhood in this circumstance. And I quit the job early, even though it was paying pretty well. I was like, I haven't been paid that well since. And um, to celebrate, I went um, to Vegas and While I was on that short flight, you know, from San Diego to Vegas, it's really short, like less than an hour. I had the worst panic attack of my life. And um, it was just like unanticipated. I was supposed to go there to celebrate quitting my job. And I Mm -hmm. felt completely disassociated from my body for like, gosh, two weeks. And then um, soon after that, I started to experience numbness in my body, I started to experience headaches started to experience all these different forms of disability, uh, difficulty with walking and movement and things. And so after that, I was diagnosed with autoimmune disease. And so that was this whole journey of learning what chronic disease looks like on the side of autoimmunity now. So, you know, once you are diagnosed in many cases with an autoimmune condition, it is your, it becomes your lifelong, I don't know, friend, friend, you know something that you're gonna live with and negotiate and process through for the rest of your life and manage and so in that fourth year I finished my dissertation just because I felt like it was became my life's purpose just to finish this thing just to get through it that was my only focus (laughs) getting through this was like you know my life's um like challenge at that time like not even um, going to my university to ask about disability services or anything because I didn't know that I was disabled. I didn't know all those. I didn't know the whole world of what chronic disease looked like for me and autoimmune living was going to look like. So that's really how it all got started. Well,
0: thank you so much for being able to share your personal experience. And I love the fact that you're able to share that because, you know, sometimes our listeners and viewers kind of need to hear it. And also, do you feel like you were at high risk because of your ethnicity and or gender? Um, just because I want to know, so people can understand, like, does autoimmune um, trigger a, a gender more than the other or a certain population more than the other? I mean, what were your findings as you were exploring the side of your new condition and trying to, like you said, manage and negotiate as you were learning your,
1: your new diagnosis? I love this question. It's like health equity becomes this like trend throughout everything I do in public health. And no, it was no different with the autoimmune world. So what I was finding was that with my diagnosis, people looked at me and in disbelief because I wasn't European. Okay, Mm -hmm. so it was like you're supposed to be European with your diagnosis like, um, you know, Latinas don't get it. Asians definitely don't get it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Thankfully, my specialist was really good at diagnosing me and there was no surprise on that side. But um, I love the fact that my specialist also talks about this disparity in data and this um, disparity in the way uh, clinical trials are conducted. And um, basically for the most part, when we do look at these autoimmune related trials, uh, I will speak differently on lupus though. But when Mm -hmm. you speak about autoimmune in general, it does tend to be more focused on um, inclusion in um, white patients, often Mm -hmm. male patients. Um, And I'll say a couple more things. Um, In many cases, men do have um, sometimes severe outcomes when it comes to autoimmunity. They don't have it as frequently but sometimes they have more severity. Um, but 75% of the population who is autoimmune tends to be women. And we talk about, we go back and forth on why that is the case. Um, we hypothesize, maybe it's you know various reasons, but uh, for the most part, it is women who tend to be diagnosed. And, but that's even more complex than that because um, according to ARDA, the American Autoimmune Related Disease Association, it takes three to five years for someone to even get a correct diagnosis or even a diagnosis at all. And then it could be a a misdiagnosis as well. So it's so complex. And, um, you know, there are people who just, they have symptoms for years and nobody believes them or they are dismissed. Um, So, I mean, for me, I'm grateful that I was diagnosed pretty quickly, but there are definitely people out there who are struggling for many years with fatigue, numbness, and pain that nobody has been able to diagnose or treat.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that because I actually had a conversation with a provider not too long ago, I think it was last month, and you mentioned something very vital that it can take up to anywhere up to three to five years because there really sometimes isn't a screening process for it or also to maybe patients don't report it into maybe tertiary stages when when symptoms have gotten really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but also too, because providers also to I think at times do providers have the right tool and assessment questions to ask to see if they can get diagnosed early and like you said I guess it varies between populations like you said Caucasian versus people of color I know there's probably a different outcome and different percentages when it comes down to that but anyway, it came down to you personally Uh, What was your decision in regards when you found out that you were diagnosed? What were some of the steps that you wanted to take initiative for your health?
1: Mm -hmm. So everything was already like in a washing machine in a way because um, of my mental health. And so that was the main issue first. It was like, okay, maybe I can handle. Well, I couldn't handle any of it, really. But the mental (laughs) health part was the hardest part for me just because every so often I just felt like, can I handle this? I felt like I was in outer space. I felt like my, I felt disconnected to my body. It was really scary. And I had never felt like I've had anxiety for most of my life, but I had never had it to this extent um, as that moment of the, before the relapse. Uh, so for me, mental health was number one. It was the main thing I needed to get under control. And it took a while to, you know, I don't know if I want to speak on the state of things, but it is difficult mm-hmm. to find good mental health. It's get, it's difficult to get access to mental health in many cases. Um, counselors are very busy um, and sometimes they're not covered under the insurance that you have. Uh, mm-hmm. And so um, it took a few times before I could find somebody that I really connected with who would actually like help me get to some, some solutions. Uh, So there are just so many different types of mental health services. And sometimes, you know, there's like talk therapy where people just like listen to you talk, Mm -hmm. done, the end, and maybe that's good for some people. And then others, there's like other therapies like EMDR or um, CB, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. So there's all these different approaches. And so for what what worked well for me was the uh, MDMR, the um, eye movement therapy um emdr i'm sorry emdr i think Mm -hmm. it was like a drug (laughs) mdmr oh no i I think it's so similar that it's like so close i did it again so it's emdr it's um Mm -hmm. this therapy that um has like the eye movement and um whatever comes to mind we address and that was the best one for me and that therapist really in, in many ways helped me so much and could have saved my life really uh so we also did practices of mindfulness and I was really new to mindfulness and she's the first person that really um, taught me those practices of like safe understanding like a safe place in your mind always being able to come back to that safe place a beautiful place that you imagine that you can always have available to you and all these other things that you can do in terms of mindfulness so that was crucial for me and from there I was able to Start to get other things under control proactivity was so important as well so the first specialist I went to I didn't trust him and he gave me a list of medications I could take but he didn't tell me about the difference between them and there are definite differences in, in the types of um, strengths and side effects and things like that as it relates to different types of therapies out there you know you have pills you have injections you have infusions you have all these different types of things and um some of them are stronger than others but he just said here try one and see you know just decide which one you want to take and like okay
0: <laughs> um yeah. so
1: anyways like self-advocacy is so important as you you speak for yourself and say you know what i don't like this doctor maybe i'm going to find another one and so being able to do that going online and saying okay oh getting a second opinion i was like i'm not sure i have this diagnosis this doesn't seem to i don't know anybody with this yeah? Um. So. Um, I, went, I need a second opinion. And then I went and I chose the doctor I was going to get that second opinion from. I went to a research university. I thought it was important for me to find someone who was on top of the science, you know, on what's working and I was up to date on all the new advances in this uh, diagnosis. So for me, self advocacy was so crucial as well.
0: That's amazing that you just mentioned that you were going to go into your second opinion, being a little bit more in control, because I think a lot of times, um patients do fear like, oh, I don't have that voice to to say that I need this. You know, I think when you're able to self-advocate for your needs, you're able to say, I want the best quality doctor that's gonna provide the best services. But like you said, a doctor and a specialist who's on top of their game and their research and treatments and all that, which is pretty amazing because I want listeners to listen to that. Mm-hmm. You know, their well-being is important. Now yeah. moving a little bit towards the outbreak, the COVID outbreak and because you do have an autoimmune disease, how are you coping with the outbreak as an individual who has experienced autoimmune um, adjustments, like you said, managing and adjusting your life and negotiating? How are you adjusting to what's happening right now?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm definitely doing the social isolation, and that's what I've been recommending for the past several days now. Uh, Even when they were talking about social distancing, I still wanted to tell the autoimmune community that social isolation was much more important. And many of us are kind of used to it anyway, just um, if, if people have disabilities, in many cases, they work from home anyway. Mm-hmm. And, um, but social isolation at this time is really important, staying away from groups of people. I think now um, they've already reduced it down to like smaller than uh, groups of 10 mm-hmm. even um, in, in places. Um, the numbers are changing daily. And um, really with an autoimmune condition, in many cases, we are um, we are immunocompromised. So if you are on therapies that suppress the immune system, we don't know exactly what is what could happen, but we already know, for example, that if it may be, well, we already know from the science and the reason that we take them is mm-hmm. that it's reducing our B cell count or our T cell count. It's affecting our white blood cells, so that we don't, um, you know, have a relapse. We're trying to avoid relapses, or we're trying to uh, reduce um, what do we call it? Um, disease progression, and so mm-hmm. we take these medications to to slow down the progression, or ideally to stop the progression. So we are immunocompromised in many cases. And so, staying away from people is has been really important to me for quite some time now.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. And so, I had another uh, quick question: What have you been doing individually at home that's been helping you stay mindfully connected to your body and to your mind to not feel the stress? Mm-hmm.
1: So, I began uh, really getting into yoga this year, and so I practice yoga almost every day. If I don't practice for more than two days, I feel like I'm missing it so much. So I do a lot of yoga and I would just mention right now, um, at this time, a lot of apps are providing free online classes. So there's like the Down Dog app that's providing free tutorials for everybody uh, on yoga. So, you know, that's a great one. And um, some of the gyms are actually offering free uh, online app courses right now. So that's kind of how I uh, keep busy right now, and I'm, I'm still working from home as usual, so I do that. and then uh, having my dog here and having puppy hugs is so wonderful. And um, you know just looking out at, at, outside at nature is really helpful as well. Um, you know, you can still be outside as long as there's really no one near you. Um, go outdoors, get some air, look at the sky, look at the clouds. And um, also enjoying some really relaxing music and making some time to read your favorite books, things like that have been helpful so far.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. And now you mentioned earlier on in the interview, you actually made a transition from your full time paying job to actually starting your own organization. Can you mention a little bit about your organization? So listeners and viewers can be aware that you did start something and seeing if there's a Uh, resources available or anything that you would like to mention in regards to why you started the organization
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so since I finished my postdoc last year I had been working on uh, building my integrative wellness business so there's that aspect as well there's um coaching and helping people to build up their design their own ideal lives with autoimmune conditions but then actually the newest thing And we're talking about like over the past few days new, I finally got my state entity document for the Autoimmune Community Institute. So this is a nonprofit organization that we are pending 501c3 status. And this is about research, support, and advocacy for the autoimmune community. And there are a few autoimmune nonprofits out there, but This one is different in the way that we are focused on health equity. We are very much focused on making sure that multicultural, diverse populations are represented in terms of their needs, in terms of what they're going through. In many cases, we still don't always know, we don't quite know what the effects of certain medications are on populations of color because we haven't tested on them. We haven't heard their voices even. So um, as a researcher, Having left the university, this is an opportunity for me to continue to do research, but it's qualitative research that I particularly love to do. Patient-centered experiences, uh, community-centered experiences, we want to make those visible. We want to hear what people are going through in terms of daily living, daily obstacles to quality of life, and then also the things that are going well. So um, you know, being more inclusive in the autoimmune community is very important to us uh, as a board. Um, well, I'll, I'm the executive director, but I'm still, I guess, a member of the board as an as executive director. But um, for me, the board and the staff, it's really important to us to be focused on health equity as uh, we do this work. Amazing. And you also mentioned that you actually do a podcast. Where can people find your
0: podcast?
1: Mm-hmm. The podcast is so much fun. I love doing it. So it's called, the, it's called the Sisterhood of Limitless Living and it's on Podbean. It's also on iTunes, uh, Spotify. So pretty much if you do a Google search, it'll come up. And it we cover so many topics on wellness, autoimmune living, and integrative wellness as well. So even those who are not in the autoimmune community can find some really great topics because we talk about wellness in general. I've Uh, done book reviews on like Deepak Chopra's books and even um we did we've done a few really fun book reviews like super attractor we've done um the self-love experiment and some other book reviews as well so yeah we talk about some broader topics and then we talk about other things specific to autoimmune living
0: Amazing. And if you could recommend a book to someone who has been recently diagnosed or a resource um, that you can think from the top of your head, are there any book recommendations or resources that you would like to kind of just um, shout out right now? Uh,
1: Number one, I think this can speak to anybody, really. Louise Hayes, You Can Heal Your Life, has so much wisdom just in the way that identifying patterns in the and our thoughts and our behaviors can be linked to particular diseases. And it's so interesting to find these connections and to think like, wow, this actually applies to me as well. So I love that book. You can heal your life. Um, Other books are like the autoimmune protocol out there. I think it's called Um, the autoimmune autoimmune wellness guide, Mickey Trescott. She has a book on uh, the AIP diet. And then the Walls Protocol, so Terry Walls' book on how she, basically, she was bed-bound, she had multiple, she does have multiple sclerosis, and um, she was able to, with diet, uh, on her own, she created this whole protocol so that now she's actually, like, living and doing everything. Um, She's walking, she's teaching, she's speaking, researching. Um, Basically, she's You know, she's on on all cylinders now. So that's pretty amazing. That's amazing. And last but not least, I had
0: a couple of participants wanting to ask questions. So we're going to do a couple of questions because they were asking and they were like, ooh, I want to ask Dr. April some questions. And so the first one is, um, someone who already has an autoimmune disease order is taking vitamin C, D3, zinc, and turmeric. Are those helpful, especially during this outbreak right now?
1: Mm -hmm. So from what I've seen, yes. Although we always have to say, we have to speak to our doctors for verification specific to our conditions. But yes, in the communications out there, vitamin C is something that we continue to take. I take vitamin C, um, keeping that side of the immune system functioning so that we are defending ourselves. Um, Other people are um, talking still about zinc and uh, other vitamins. So I take um, omegas, I take vitamin Ds, I take vitamin Cs uh, every day. So um, yes, uh, in conversations out there, uh, people do recommend vitamin C, but it does uh, depend specifically on your circumstance.
0: Thank you. That was a um, well-response. The next question. If someone has COVID-19 and gets treated and makes it for recovery, will they become immune to it?
1: There's not enough information right now. It's too new still. We are still seeing um, people recovering right now. So we don't know the long-term um, details of that. I've heard various um, types of information in terms of what happens to people who do recover. So um, I've heard, you know, there's varying levels of severity um, in whether people have an autoimmune condition or not. I've actually seen reports that people have done pretty well despite autoimmune conditions, have been able to recover. So that is beautiful news to hear that um, we're hearing some reports out there that people are in Italy. Uh, for example in spain that people with autoimmune conditions and on these medications have been able to um, get into a stable condition so that is very hopeful news but i've heard other stories about how um, it um, recovery can still lead to um, some percentage of lung damage um, after the fact as a result of the condition. Um, So I'm hearing a lot of different things out there that, yes, um, there is hope out there, but also even among the healthiest of people, sometimes there's a level of um, lung damage after COVID-19. Thank you so
0: much for being able to provide that information. Uh, Next question, Uh, will I be able, or let me, this is actually from a viewer, or will I be able to find articles with more data for women of color who are diagnosed with autoimmune diseases, or will there be future studies um, that will include that will be more inclusive for um, people of color?
1: That's a beautiful question. There are some studies out there. Um, okay, so I was mentioning lupus earlier. Lupus is a specific case where we do find a lot of studies on people of color, women of color in particular. There's a lot on how. Um, lupus has affected African American women, um, and then also um, even Latinx women, Latinx, the Latinx population, Latinas, and also some Asians. So um, lupus is a one case where we do see that it affects minorities uh, very distinctly. So there is going to be more data available on what they're going through. I've seen some other. Uh, things in terms of like Lyme, multiple sclerosis, there are some very few numbers of data out there um, and research on people of color, but it does they do exist, but in small number. And my goal is to increase those numbers. So I love this question. I appreciate this question because this is what the Autoimmune Community Institute nonprofit is going to be working on building. Thank you.
0: And my last question comes from a viewer who's been trying to get pregnant and has been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease such as lupus. Does fertility become more um, high risk for women who have autoimmune disease?
1: I don't know specifically about high risk, but I do know in terms of relapse that some people say that um, during pregnancy they feel great and then sometimes after giving birth that they experience a relapse. So these are just experiences that I've heard out there from people who are pregnant stories, who people who have interviewed on my podcast as well. Um, people who were not even diagnosed yet, and then were diagnosed after they delivered their child. Um, so wow. yeah, so we do hear these stories about how pregnancy does impact, um, the likelihood of a relapse, but, um, yeah, there's nothing out there to say that someone couldn't, I mean, I can't speak on all autoimmune conditions because some of them do affect, you know, the um, reproductive system. But um, I haven't seen any studies out there in particular that would say that um, you should not have a kid because of an autoimmune condition. Um, There are some, you know, you'd have to consider your medication and whether that could cause some kind of harm to the child but for the most part it is still possible to have a baby with an autoimmune condition
0: well thank you so much dr april for taking the time to sit down and have this conversation with us and now if people have questions where can they find you
1: they can find me at aprilmorenophd.com. that's my website And then on Instagram at Dr. April Wellness. So it's spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R, April Wellness. Uh, Also on Facebook, the same thing, Dr. April Wellness. And then the Autoimmune Community Institute. We are building up the website. The domain has been purchased. We are pending 501c3 status. So depending on when you're you're listening to this, the website is acicommunity.org. Uh, And so that stands for the Autoimmune Community Institute, and community is at the center of this organization.
0: Thank you so much for being able to provide that updated good news. We can't wait for your nonprofit to be in full effect, um, because it will be a much needed resources for our populations and community of color. As we know, sometimes there's not enough resources available. So I really do appreciate you taking the time and wanting to start that resource, as well as Listeners and you, as you heard, you can drop her a DM. You can email her to make sure you can stay in close contact. If you have perhaps maybe a family or friend, or even yourself, if you have some questions, to be able to provide support and education and try to connect you to resources. So also, be mindful of her time because I don't know your availability, but I'm pretty sure she will connect you with her availability hours and so on. Any other comments you would like to drop, Dr. April, before we end the conversation?
1: Um, yeah. yeah, I would just say that if If you suspect that you have an autoimmune condition, or if you do have an autoimmune condition, don't give up. Be persistent in getting the help that you need. Be clear on what you need. Uh, Be able to be willing to communicate what you're going through. There's no requirement on you ever having to share the diagnosis. There are stigmas out there. So just be mindful that there is definitely definitely some stigma out there when it comes to working full-time and, um, you know, people, sometimes lose their jobs. So just being very specific about, okay, I'm getting headaches today. I get, I'm really tired, Uh, but not, you're not required to report to HR or anybody what your diagnosis is. But again, just never give up and be clear, be your own best advocate. And also I should mention my podcast again, it's the Sisterhood of Limitless Living. And um, you know, you can find some tips on there on the podcast on how to be uh, proactive and to, to live an amazing life despite we're going through
0: thank you so much for your time and once again listeners i will have her website and her resources available linked up to the podcast episode and once again if you have any questions please feel free to reach out to dr april she's such a sweetheart, and she's full of knowledge and i just want to be able to provide uh, a dynamic conversation like today thank you so much thank you